chapter 21 of Matthew, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the coat and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the very first thing that I'd like you to do is to take your handout um, that you were given when you came in and to look at the top line there and take a pen um, and just put a line through that opening question. You'll see the relevance of it later. But the question I want to start with this morning um, is what would you be missing out on if you missed out on Jesus? And forget the question that's there. What would you be missing out on if you missed out on Jesus? Imagine a student an international student um, who's just arrived in London. And they're from a Christian home, and they've gone to a Christian school. Perhaps they went to MGS. Um, perhaps they went to St. Andrew's Junior College. Um, and they've arrived in London. Um, and they would kind of say that they're Christian as they arrive. And I want to imagine that student in four years' time. And they leave London, and they have excelled academically. And they have got the, the A classes and the first classes and the A's and the certificates and the medals. And that student has had a really wonderful time. They have seen Western Europe. They've got an amazing Instagram feed. And that student has had all the best parties. And they look back on their time in London. They can genuinely say, I was successful. I was happy. I had fun. I succeeded. But they're not a Christian. Imagine that student. What would they be missing out on? Uh, Maybe come at it from another angle. Think of your friends who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. This is more or less a marketing uh, lesson number one, isn't it? You want to market something to somebody, uh, you need to think about, you need to identify the need that it meets and then show people um, how the thing that you're marketing meets that need. Well, what is it that the Lord Jesus, what's the need that he meets it's such a privilege to be speaking at a baptism this morning. Um, I remember a baptism that I went to uh, many years ago now, um, and there were a whole series of testimonies um, at that baptism. And one of the person gave their testimony explained how thankful they were for the Lord Jesus and because he had delivered them from their childhood trauma. And another person said how thankful they were for the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus had saved them from their loneliness And then the third person said they were so thankful for the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus had helped them to meet the funeral costs of a relative who had died. 
But, but what if you're not traumatized by your childhood? And what if you have enough money to pay for the funeral costs? And what if you're not lonely? What would you be missing out on if you didn't know the Lord Jesus? Or come at it from a third angle. Let's say that you looked the Lord Jesus in the face, you looked him up and down, you sized him up, and then you made the decision to reject him. What would you be rejecting? What would you be doing by rejecting him if you rejected the Lord Jesus? Well, we're in Matthew chapters 21 to 23. It is a rejection section. And that's my only poem for this morning, a rejection section. Um, And we're going to meet the leaders of Jerusalem over the next three chapters who do, in fact, reject the Lord Jesus, um, who miss out on him. Uh, We're going to have their attitude under the microscope for the next three chapters of this gospel. And then we're going to see Jesus' searing condemnation of them. But before we get to that, Jesus takes the initiative to reveal himself. He wants them, he wants us to understand exactly who he is and precisely what they are missing out on. And he wants us to understand exactly what they are doing by rejecting this king. Uh, Two points, this well, three in the end, two to begin with. Number one, he deliberately identifies himself. Jesus deliberately identifies himself as Zion's returning lords. Now, actually, we're getting ahead of ourselves slightly there. The first thing to say is that Jesus does deliberately identify himself in the passage that we just had read. And this is a moment of intentional self-identification. The context is, if you go back in Matthew, all the way back to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, two key things happened. The first was that the disciples saw very clearly who the Lord Jesus was. And Jesus said that they said that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. And the second was that Jesus told them that he was now going to Jerusalem, and he began to make his journey there. We've been tracking with that journey for the last three or four chapters. But ever since that moment in chapter 16, Jesus has had the disciples on a leash. He swore them to secrecy. I mean, they're apostles. Their job is to tell people about him, but they have been told they are not to tell anybody about him ever since chapter 16. But in the verses that we just had read, that all changes. I look down to verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, then Jesus sent two disciples. It's time for Jesus to let the disciples loose. This is the moment of the big reveal, a public announcement from the Lord Jesus himself about who he thinks he is. What he does is quite striking. And if you've read through Matthew's gospel before, you might have noticed that you get a whole bunch of these so-called fulfillment formulas. A whole bunch of times in the gospel, we're told this took place to fulfill what was written. But what's quite interesting about those fulfillment formulas is that many of them, um, they're not really describing things that Jesus did to fulfill things. They're things that kind of happened to Jesus. And that, as it turns out, if you knew your Old Testament well, providentially fulfilled the scriptures. And so I don't think Jesus, the baby, really chose where to be born. 
Um, I don't think he really chose that his parents were going to run away to Egypt. I don't think he chose that an evil king was going to sort of tyrannically kill a whole lot of babies. And yet those things fulfilled the scriptures. But this one is different. This is the most intentional, the most obviously intentional in the whole of the gospel. It's not that Jesus fancied a donkey ride that day, um, like he's by the seaside. Nor is it that his feet were really tired and he thought, goodness, I need somebody to carry me. It is that Jesus knew his Old Testament. He knew what the Old Testament scripture said, and he was deliberately acting out the scriptures so that you could know that Jesus was the promised king. This took place to fulfill what was written. Um, to begin with, it's a moment of deliberate self-identification. This is who Jesus wants you to understand that he is. And if you want to understand who Jesus is, um, well, Matthew gives you the key. Uh, Matthew gives you the Old Testament background, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And like all the best moments in Anna Kendrick's film, Pitch Perfect, um, this is a mashup. Um, there are two tunes um, that Matthew thinks are very closely related to each other. And they think that if you get that mashup together, you'll understand just what it is that Jesus wants you to see. And the first tune is Isaiah chapter 62, um, the passage that we just had read for us as our second reading. And because Jesus wants you to see that he is Zion's returning Lord. Certainly that's how he describes himself, isn't it? In verse three, look back there. And if anyone says anything to you, Jesus says, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them and he'll send them at once. It's hard to know uh, whether um, this kind of detailed description of what might happen and what you should say when they go to get these donkeys is a sign of Jesus's kind of supernatural sovereignty and foresight, or whether it's just that Jesus was a good planner and that he'd arranged a password. As in both are genuinely open, Matthew doesn't tell us which one of those is the case. But what Matthew does want us to see is that as Jesus makes this entry into the city, um, as Jesus makes this big public entry into Jerusalem, the fact that he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord needs them, is enormously significant. The first thing we have to understand is that this is the arrival of the Isaiah 62 Lord returning to his city. Let me say something about Isaiah chapter 62. Um, the book of Isaiah looked forwards to a day when God himself would come to his people. Uh, the Lord would come to his city and the Lord would come to Zion. And actually, once you, um, once you realize that Jesus might be identifying himself as that Lord's, the whole drama of the last few chapters of Matthew reminds us of what was going on in Isaiah. And so Isaiah looked forward to a day when the Lord would come to his people, but he would bring a great throng um, of the lost people of Israel with him, uh, reuniting them with a desolate city. And it turns out, as you read through Matthew chapter 16 to 20, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing, gathering a great, greater, ever-increasing crowd of people who he brings with him into the city. And back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's favorite word to describe those returning people was as children. 
the long-lost children of Mother Zion. And of course, that's the way that Jesus has been describing his disciples in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, In Isaiah, the place that the Lord was to come was to Jerusalem. And that's what Zion means when you read it in the book of Isaiah. And here is Jesus arriving as the Lord in Jerusalem. One of the themes of conversation in this bit of Matthew uh, that keeps coming up again and again um, is wedding. There's a lot of wedding banter um, in Matthew chapters 19 to 22. And the great image in the book of Isaiah of the Lord's arrival in Zion was of a wedding day and the bridegroom uh, arriving and being reunited uh, with his wife. And so when Jesus says the Lord has need of them, Matthew's absolutely right um, to think that he had Isaiah, Isaiah 62 in mind. Jesus wanted us to make this connection. As he made his public entry into the city, he was coming as the Lord himself, Zion's returning Lord, God himself, coming back to his people. It's very striking. One of the things that a Christian is, is a people of the promise. Um, If you're a Christian, you'll realize that we are a people who wait. I'm actually a people who spend our whole lives waiting. And that can seem quite mad, can't it? Um, A fool's errand. I mean, it is mad that as Christians, we spend our entire lives waiting for something that almost certainly won't happen during our lifetime. That's incredible, isn't it? To live your life for something that you probably won't see before you die. And the world around us doesn't think that's very sensible at all. And you can understand why. And so as Christians, we can begin to try to redefine what it is to be a Christian. Oh, listen, I mean, of course it's true that I have some vague aspirations for the future, but mostly I'm a Christian because, well, because it makes me successful, um, or because it makes me happy, um, or because it makes me more mentally balanced, um, or because it makes me healthy. But the truth is that Christians are right to wait, because the Lord God has a track record. And the people that were living at the time of the Lord Jesus had been waiting for hundreds of years for this day when the Lord would come to his people. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that that is what is happening here. The Lord himself, after all of the waiting, arriving with his people, coming to Zion. It is good news, the good news of a faithful God. We're not waiting for the Lord to come. We're waiting for the Lord to come again. But of course, what it means is that this is what they missed. As we read on into this rejection section, what they missed is the Lord himself, their God, coming to them. It's an absolute tragedy. As I said, they had been waiting for hundreds of years. And what they were waiting for, I mean, just go back and read Isaiah 62 later on. It is so good. Good news of comfort and of peace and salvation and joy and renewal, not only of Jerusalem, but of the wide world. Their God coming to them. And when he came, they missed it. They rejected him. It's an absolute tragedy for them. That should be a tragedy for anybody, wouldn't it? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian this morning and you're so welcome here. Listen, our God 
our God is not some sort of distant despot in the heavens. He is the good God, the Lord who comes near, the Lord who makes things right, the Lord who promises to make his home with us. What you'd be missing out on if you missed out on him is not something that you can find elsewhere. What you'd be rejecting if you reject him is the only God, the true God, and the one who comes. It would be a complete tragedy. Jesus deliberately identifies himself as Zion's returning Lord. But like I said, it is a mashup. Um, two tunes and um, one verse. Um, here's the other tune, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, and then no longer Isaiah 62, now Zechariah chapter 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Secondly, Jesus deliberately identifies himself as Jerusalem's servant king. Now, the king part is obvious, isn't it? Behold, your king is coming to you, verse 5. When Jesus sent for the donkeys, he was sending for the vehicle that would make it obvious that he was coming into Jerusalem as the Zechariah chapter 9 king. Jerusalem's king is coming. Actually, it's backed up from a whole bunch of other angles. And so when the crowd in verses 6 and 7 put their garments onto the road, we're probably supposed to hear an echo of of a moment hundreds of years before when their forebears, their ancestors had cast their garments onto the roads to announce the arrival of a new king from the north, probably. And then certainly there's the song that they sing. And the crowds, they sing two songs in verse 9, don't they? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they go back to the first song, Hosanna in the highest. And the middle song, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a line taken out of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a song all about the arrival of a a David-like, king-like figure in Jerusalem. Um, And then, of course, explicitly, blessed is he who comes, but Hosanna to the son of David. And David, Israel's greatest ever king, and their most famous king, their best king, and the son of David, the promised descendant of David, who would be an even better king than his great-great-grandfather. The crowd have absolutely got this right. This is definitely a royal moment. The king is arriving in his city. And that's right. That is what Jesus wanted them to understand when he sent for those donkeys and rode them down to Jerusalem that day. And that in itself is quite striking, isn't it? It means that when they reject the Lord Jesus... The city is rejecting their king. Um, I've been working my way through um, the Lord of the Rings with my 10-year-old son, Judah. I'm not going to lie. Um, it's been toil. Um, that's like really hard work. Um, uh, whether that's about Tolkien or about my son, I don't know. But we've made a heavy weather of getting to this point. But we're now in the return of the king. We've got to the city. Um, and we've got past that bit. Do you remember that bit? Where the steward of the city, the steward of Gondor, Denethor, hears the news that Aragorn, um, the rightful king of um, Gondor, is arriving, um, and, and he doesn't like it. Now, if you haven't read The Lord of the Rings, you haven't seen the film, don't worry, it's kind of in Matthew's Gospel. Let's just get it from here. <laughs> um, uh, but it's a tragic moment, isn't it, in the, in the book, um, because Denethor's whole purpose in life, his existence as the steward of Gondor, is to be ready to hold the city 
until the moment when the true king arrives. But then when the king comes, um, he, he, he doesn't like it. And for all sorts of reasons, he hangs on to power and it consumes him. And that's what's going to happen in the next few weeks. It's a great sort of image that the, the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, the stewards of this city, their whole purpose has been to hold power whilst waiting for the arrival of the king. And now he's come. And they're not going to like it. And just like Denethor, it will consume them. Jesus wants you to understand that he's Jerusalem's true king, but not just a king. He deliberately announces that he is a servant king. Now, this is a little bit tricky, and not everybody detects a note of humility um, here in, in Matthew chapter 21. But the more I've thought about this this week, the more it seems clear to me that this really is the thing that Matthew wants to draw our attention to. Um, he's not just a king, he is the servant king. Um, three reasons for that. Uh, the first thing, now this is a little bit tenuous, but the first is the fact that Matthew well, Matthew introduces the second donkey, doesn't he? Um, if you've ever read the other Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, all four of them record Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, but Matthew's the only one who has two donkeys um, on the way in. Now, that's not because Matthew was imagining that Jesus was trying to ride both donkeys at the same time, um, sort of like sort of straddle the two of them or sort of stand with one foot and one and one on the other. Um, and that would be ridiculous, and I don't think that's what happens. Actually, I think it's because Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus didn't even ride the donkey. He didn't even ride the donkey. The mother was there for moral support. Jesus rode the colt, the fold of the donkey, the little one. Now, that's the one that Jesus was on. And then there's the way that Matthew translates his Old Testament. And now, Matthew had a Greek Bible. Um, and in Matthew's Greek Bible, it didn't quite say what 21 verse 5 says. And so it said something like this, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal, and then stops there. But, but Matthew's glossed it, and he's added a little bit just to draw it out. On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, the son of a beast of burden. He was riding on a pack animal, on a burden bearer. A servant king on a servant steed. And then, of course, there's the fact that, again, uniquely amongst all the gospel writers, Matthew quotes Isaiah, like John does, but then includes this word, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, meek, mounted on a donkey. See, Matthew wants you to understand that this announcement that day was not just that Jesus was the king of Jerusalem coming to his city, but that he was the humble king the servant king arriving with his people. Now, in one sense, that is not a surprise, is it? So ever since Matthew, cha uh, Matthew chapter 20, we've known that for all that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their people, Jesus is one who serves. And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But it's important to say that this is not merely servanthood's chic. Uh, Jesus is not just posturing um, as humble. Um, years ago, um, 20 years ago or so now, thankfully, um, I was applying for a job. I think it was a Christian ministry job. Um, and I was in a conversation with my aunt about it. And I said to her, it's really important that I come across as humble. And my wife uh, said, to, my wife, no, she was my aunt. My aunt said to me, no, Gwilym, 
it's really important that you are humble. <laughs> it's really important that I come across as humble. Now, there is a sort of humility, isn't it, that plays well. And sometimes coming across as humble is a strategic decision to kind of make people like you um, or to get things done. No one likes people who are too cocky. But Jesus is not posturing here. This is not a PR stunt. If you want to grasp how Jesus is announcing himself, you need to see where this leads. You see, Jesus knows that this day is the point of no return. Jesus coming into the city like this with the crowds acclaiming him on that donkey, the humble king, this guarantees that seven days later, he will leave the city dead or on a cross. It's the point of no return. You see, Jesus isn't on a donkey because he wants to come across or project himself as humble. No, he is taking the first step down on a journey that would lead to the greatest humiliation of all. And as Phil reminded us a couple of weeks ago, he did it for us. And he humbled himself as our ransom, as the price of our forgiveness. Jesus deliberately identifies himself as Jerusalem's servant king. It's quite a mashup, isn't it? Two tunes that you wouldn't normally imagine that you might play together. Um, announcing himself as the Lord, as God himself. Come to his city in joy. Announcing himself as the servant king, coming to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, to win forgiveness. And the point is that as his people in the next few chapters reject him, and as they oppose him, as they miss out on him, as they kill him, this is who they are rejecting. Just think for a moment about what that means that they are doing when they reject him. And of course, what it means is that missing out on the Lord Jesus is not missing out on one route to the top amongst many. You know, it's not like applying for a grad scheme or for a place at university. You know, if you don't get into Oxford, you could always go to King's. If you don't get into King's, you could always go to UCL. Um, <laughs> If you don't get a job at Rothschilds, you could always get a job at Goldman Sachs. Now, there's always, there's only one servant king. There's only one plan to extend God's kingdom and his rule and his forgiveness to those who need it. This is unique. If you miss out on him, there is no workaround. If the city misses out on him, that is it. And to tell the truth, things don't look very good, because thirdly, and more briefly, Jerusalem doesn't like it. Uh, verse 8. Um, most of the crowd were spreading their cloaks on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the roads. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, actually, there are two responses here. Firstly, there's the crowds. 
Um, and Matthew gives the crowd quite a lot of airtime. They're not from Jerusalem, this crowd. This is not the, the, the population of Jerusalem welcoming the king. This is the crowd who's come with him along the way. Um, they're from Galilee. They're northerners, and they're enthusiastic, um, and they're very noisy. Um, and, and they sort of seem to mostly get it right. Although even here, there's something a bit ominous. So they're singing the right song. They're singing Psalm 118. We'll come back to that song in future weeks. But their timing is all wrong. Um, uh, They're in the sort of victorious conclusion of the song when Jesus seems to think he's still in the difficult early stanzas. And then Jesus has just declared that he is the Lord, but they call him a prophet, which is a bit of a downgrade, isn't it? And then... Well, then Jesus has said that he has come to serve, and they're busy celebrating a victory. I mean, they're very noisy, and they're very enthusiastic, and they're definitely the better response in the passage, but you can't help but feel that they're just not listening very carefully. In fact, it seems to me that the thing that they're most excited of of all is the fact that he's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Here's this northern crowd who've made their way down from Galilee, And the thing they're most excited about is that their man is about to have his go at making it big in the city. And that's the crowds. The worst response comes from the city, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And that word stirred up, it's literally the word shaken, as in shaken like an earthquake. They don't recognize him and they don't like it. And they're going to like it even less next week. The extraordinary thing, isn't it? God himself has come to save. The Lord himself has returned to Zion. He's come as a servant king to to win forgiveness. And to the inhabitants of this city, his city, to the inhabitants of the city, it feels like an earthquake, like some sort of a natural disaster. The crowds aren't listening and the city don't recognize him. And I guess that does pose the question of us, doesn't it, this morning? I began with the question, what would you be missing out on if you missed out on Jesus? Well, as you see the crowds not really getting it, it puts the question back to us, doesn't it? The man who rode into the city that day does not want you to be ignorant of who he is. On the one hand, he is God himself, the good God, the faithful God, the compassionate God who has come to his people. On the other, he is the servant, the king who reigns, not for himself, but for us, who gives his life a ransom for many, the the servant king who buys forgiveness for his people. No one has ever entered any city, anywhere in this wide world, at any point in history, more wonderfully than this. In fact, the only homecoming, the only city entry in the whole of human history that will surpass this is the day when he comes again. Have a gathering of even more people from all the world whose souls he bought, the multitude of those he ransomed from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
And so let me speak a word to the students who are arriving in London and who may be here for the first time. Whatever you get from your time in London, whatever you get from these few years, you do not want to miss out on him. None of us do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that the living Lord Jesus Christ does not want us to be in the dark about who he is. We praise you that he shows himself to us. We thank you that he is the Lord himself. Um, We thank you that he is your son and coming as God to his people. And we praise you that he'll come again. And we thank you so much that he is the servant king coming to win salvation for his people fulfilling your mandate to, to, to buy us forgiveness. And Father, we want to pray so much that you would help every one of us to see the Lord Jesus, to recognize him. And then we ask that you would humble us to trust him and to follow him on the way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.